one of the worst preps ever. On your this, end, not mine. On my end. You've been ready. I've been Dude, ready. It's been like. I was on time taking, today. I was ready. It's been so long. I've spent so much time just getting ready. Battery's not working. Zoom recorder's not working. Can you feel the frustration in my voice, Cherise? Yeah, this is going to make a great intro. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash which provides you with exclusive content as well as access to our Discord community. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Good energy. It's funny how I have this this burst of energy based off frustration. I would I would rather have frustrated energy than than no energy. Than no energy. Than complacency right. and apathy. All right, I'm going to go first then. Go for it. My subject this week is breaking into fashion was already hard. Amid COVID-19 is a design generation lost. And this is a story that appeared in Vogue Business, and it was written by Bella Webb. And she examines the current landscape for fashion school amidst, you know, a post-COVID world. I think most people would agree that entry and success into fashion isn't easy. And entry isn't something that's necessarily hard. Like, you could go start a t-shirt company. I could start a t-shirt company. But to build a career within it is quite challenging. Yep. I think a lot of it comes down to just there's a general layer of gatekeeping. Some of it is more malicious than others, but it's just in general, you need certain credentials and or experiences for you to, I guess, progress in your career. So it's internships, it is access to the right schools, et cetera, et cetera. To kick things off in this story, they use the case of Christina Grobe, who isn't able to attend classes at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Instead, she's tuning in from Europe via Zoom, and she has to kind of contend with a nine-hour time difference. So this is actually something adjacent to something we were potentially going to explore as one of the topics this week, and it was about just what happens with remote learning and who stands to lose the most. Arguably, if you're going to fashion school, then I think you're not necessarily coming from a place of, with a lack of means, let's just say, right? Yeah, I mean, we almost picked this article that was about how remote learning exacerbates existing inequalities within different families. And particularly that article was talking about young children, so children who are primary school age. And I was interested, I, I am interested in that topic and I have read about it previously, but I didn't pick it because I felt it was a little bit of a departure from what we usually talk about. And yeah, also because it's not. I mean, we talk about a lot of things that are not our own individual areas of expertise, but I felt like this was a little, that was a little bit of a stretch. 
and, and your subject touches on it anyway, you know, difficulties with remote education. Just from like a top level overview in that Fast Company article, they highlight a few different challenges. And the ones I thought were most interesting were device led because ultimately remote learning does come down to certain tool requirements, right? It's like access to a device. Yeah. But in access some cases- Access to a device and access to Wi-Fi, access to internet as well. Yeah, correct. So in some cases, this is sort of looking at, at that from a device sharing perspective. It's not that every nine-year-old has their own device to learn off of, no. right? Whether it's a screen, um, even like a Chromebook. So that's something to really consider, as is the- ability to learn through physical materials. So one of the things they mentioned was that people that had the ability to use even simple stuff like printouts versus looking at a tablet screen, like yeah. they actually were more successful learning through printed matter. Yeah. I mean, to focus on the Vogue article, which is about fashion designers who are studying right now or who are a recent graduate, I think it still applies because even though the effects might not be quite as extreme as it, children who are like ages five to 10, there are still obviously inequalities in fashion design students and mm -hmm. who has access to hardware and software that's going to help them do this type of like remote learning and remote internships. Yeah. Yeah. So for some of these people that have gone to school and are finishing school, they, one of the main channels towards your entry into the industry is through internships. And obviously, in a COVID world, a lot of those have been canceled. And the three things that they list in this Vogue business article that are slowly not going away, but the opportunity is definitely lacking. It's placements, graduate showcases, and entry-level jobs. Yeah. So some people have stepped up, like fashion media and incubators are trying to help with placements. And... Back to like why this is important, because for fashion students, like visibility is one of the most critical things. And without visibility and the ability to build their portfolio, that's where they will have challenges growing in their career. Yeah. But some brands and platforms have been releasing guys, tutorials and insights on how to make it in the world of fashion, including the Sarah Band Foundation, which was founded by the late Lee Alexander McQueen. While other brands like LVMH, Mullen Lowe, and L'Oreal are working with Central St. Martins on mentorship collaborations. But I think ultimately we all agree that looking back, it's incredibly difficult and challenging to build rewarding digital relationships, let alone reap all the benefits you get from being face-to-face -face and learning. Like I think that's actually one of the most critical things like this is something I've, I've had to contend with is that since we don't have like a physical office, it's a lot more of a cognitive load to educate and or to onboard somebody. Yeah. I think you would agree too. Like I mean, we trying talked to about learn that everything. last week. Exactly. So I think that's really difficult. And let's not forget that fashion is such a, such a physical yeah. industry. Like a tactile, tangible thing. Super tactile and tangible. And those are things that, you know, you can't really replicate that through Zoom. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. And then there are some other solutions that are, I call them semi-solutions because I don't think they're the best, but there are movements such as XYZ Exchange, which brought together 
15 grads from various London colleges to present alongside several international peers who tuned in via Zoom, which I don't think is the full solution because ultimately you're going to have a fully baked concept that's live and in person versus not half-baked, but severely limited and hampered peers that are tuning in and showcasing via Zoom, right? Yeah, but I, I think that beyond that, the glimmer of hope is that I mean, if you are in the so-called like fashion industry, there should be a level of creativity and ingenuity at the core of what you do. So hopefully you can just make do with what you have currently and rebuild the whole system. And then I think lastly, one thing is that, and this is kind of the thing that I don't believe this piece touched upon enough, was what happens when there just aren't any jobs? right? If there's no jobs being created and it's like a contracting industry, then that itself will squeeze out sort of the future of this industry. And the reason why I think this is important is that if you look at COVID-19 related consumption and just fashion in general, fashion itself is an industry that requires non-essential consumption to exist. And when I say non-essential, I mean like food, shelter, clothing, in terms of just like protection against the elements, those are obviously somewhat essential. But in terms of fashion, it's a non-essential consumption uh, requirement. So what happens if this becomes the new normal? And I think it's important that I bring up some sort of COVID-19 related fashion consumption stat right around here. Okay, sure. There's this piece I came across in JustStyle.com, which is an apparel sourcing site, which is primarily B2B. But they're saying that U.S. textile and apparel sales could shrink by more than 50% this year due to the coronavirus outbreak. Mm. So those are examples of stats. I'm sure I could look deeper into this, but I think the general sentiment is that there's a shift away from fashion as we know it, especially fashion at the full price level. I mean, it's not to say that people haven't been online shopping, right? But I would argue that fashion wasn't built to sell stuff at sale as the regular sales price, if that makes sense. I think we can say at least this, that the size of the industry is not large enough to support the number of fresh graduates. And so even though this article, like you said, talks about placements and giving advice and finding ways to do digital showcases, even if they did all of those things really well, which as you said, there may be half successful measures if the jobs do not exist then it doesn't make a difference exactly once again sharice coming to my rescue and just clarifying these complex thoughts yeah so that is my general sentiment around it is because there seems to be a shift but what's probably more fascinating around this is that this is these are anecdotal thoughts like there's no sort of support beyond just piecing together things. But it's right now the hardest hit markets, right, in the Western world, such as the United States, they're facing a pretty big series of economic challenges down the line, right? Yeah. They're going to have to contend with COVID, the inability to really curtail COVID, obviously an, an economy that's contracting, lack of disposable income to purchase fashion, which generally is where it comes from, right? Your ability to buy stuff. Like if you don't, if you can only spend your money on groceries and you have nothing left over, then where does fashion sit within that? But then on the flip side, you do see in China 
they're they're probably one of the quickest to rebound. And China themselves are a rather large consumption market for fashion. Yeah. So, I mean, there's always this talk that China will sort of <laughs> bolster various industries around the world because of the size of their market. But maybe it's not as hard of a landing because you have certain relatively large markets that are going to be able to support fashion going forward. However, I will suggest that there has been a trend towards more domestic brands as of late. So one of the people I work with, like on a client side, they have retailers across Southeast Asia and they mentioned, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, is that there's a growing interest in domestic brands versus trends of, let's say, five years ago where people in Asia were more interested in consuming foreign brands. Mm -hmm. So that itself could create its own job market for fashion-related personalities in Asia. Yeah, well, one thing that I think is interesting that I think is relevant is that the examples this article cites are all really big name fashion brands and fashion houses. And maybe that's intentional to reach a wider readership that understands, you know, what the article is talking about. But but just looking at this one paragraph is talking about placements at Mark Chesa and Mark Jacobs and Ralph Lauren, you know, and I think that's quite like the article says, these traditional roots into the fashion industry. And I think there's a lot of alternative, not, I wouldn't even say alternative roots into the fashion industry. Like there is a, what we might consider like subsectors of the fashion industry or just other fashion adjacent type of work. That's not mm -hmm. the typical idea of like an internship or a placement or a job. I think that still exists. One thing I'm curious is that as you mentioned adjacencies, and you obviously are very familiar with the world of Animal Crossing, is there any sort of crossover where if you as a fashion designer become an Animal Crossing fashion designer? Yeah. And we've seen our friends do that, right? I mean, is but is the technical know-how to become a fashion designer within the realm of Animal Crossing actually far simpler because the limitations are so clearly defined versus I if I'm... I think yeah, there are ahead. opportunities for fashion design students and young fashion designers to do, like I said, fashion adjacent things such as Animal Crossing or designing Fortnite skins or being in the video game industry in fashion relevant roles. But I didn't bring that up, actually, because I think that actually those opportunities are fewer. So even though we talked fewer, fewer. so even it's though we just talked not a replacement. about. Yeah, it's not like. There are definitely going to be like select fashion designers who that's a great option for and like somehow their interest in the type of work they do lines up really well. But that's not going to be like an option for a lot of people. At least I don't see it that way. So even though the fashion industry is contracting, as we said, or shrinking and moving, it's still more likely that young fashion designers are going to find roles within the fashion industry as we know it, but maybe not the same type of roles they would have wanted for themselves like four years ago. As you said, like potentially working with China or working with Asia in different types of, or it, maybe that takes up a larger sector of jobs. Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, I'm obviously interested in those fashion adjacent like 
gaming or music or whatever virtual related types of jobs but i just don't think there's you know that many of them if we're talking yeah. about like what's viable at a larger scale maybe this is the hard look in the mirror for the fashion industry where fashion now needs to contend with fashion as we've known it in the past which is cloth fabric materials sewn together or conceived in a way that's worn in a physical manner maybe it's less about that and it's maybe more of the essence of fashion which is like identity mm-hmm. and communication and art slash creativity and that needs to break itself down and reform in a different output yeah because that i mean i've talked about this a ton and you brought up skin design and whatnot skin designs generally execute on the same things that fashion does right like it's about me creating identity me showing you what my personality is there might be an underlying message there 100 percent. so maybe that's where it needs to kind of retool itself because i would say that fashion primarily needs to work in social context right Mm -hmm. like yes we wear fashion for ourselves but then there's also an element of it where i also want to reap the benefits of what it's like for me to have this in a communal or social setting yeah and i don't think we're at a point where we're totally eradicating social settings by virtue of being online it's just shifting exactly exactly and to reference another topic that we didn't pick complex recently announced that they're going to do a completely virtual complex con in december of this year and it's this multi-day completely virtual event Call Complex Land. Call Complex Land. I don't understand why they didn't just call it Complex Con. Anyway, doesn't matter. Complex Land. And you're going to be able to make your own avatar and wear clothes and footwear. And I think acquire. The details are not clear yet. Like whether you're acquiring both a digital and a physical version of the clothing and the footwear. But it kind of sounds like that's what's going to happen. So that's completely in line with what we're saying here about a potential route that fashion goes down. I think what's interesting to me from this article is that it kind of highlighted how universities and these kind of secondary organizations are trying to help graduates, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of support from fashion brands themselves, or at least not so discussed in this article. Yeah, I think that fashion itself, but arguably fashion is going through its own challenges to stay afloat. So I could see how most of the fashion brands out there are struggling to redefine and reinvent themselves. Those with enough means perhaps are able to like, break apart some of the funds they already have allocated. Maybe it's not the full, let's say $500,000 they usually allocate. It's 250000 It's yeah. like $150,000, right? So yeah, I think it's something that's worth looking into. I am, I am very, very curious. Like they always say that there are these catastrophic moments or big, big moments in history that affect the trajectory of a culture mm-hmm. right so i'm this is something that's that's interesting because I, I wouldn't be able to psychologically map it back to something like i wouldn't say that there was trauma 
from 2008 that beyond just what type of fashion was created actually changed the current fashion industry 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what happened in 2008, I don't know what are the ramifications of that, but it would be interesting to know, like if you were a fashion designer from back then, how are you looking at the world now? Or is it more that, hey, I took it on the chin and actually fashion is back to where it was going anyways. It just took a bit of a detour and it's back to where it was. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be hard to exactly describe, right? Because it's like, I mean, this is, I have to assume that 2020 is going to have long-term effects on the fashion industry slash the whole world. And it's hard to describe because every person who's currently a young fashion designer is going to respond differently. Like there are people who are going to choose other careers as a result. Yeah. And it's, I don't know how, I suppose you could get track that through universities. You know, how many people who graduate who didn't wind up working in the industry, but then you, it'd be hard to see, you know, how many people found similar types of work, how many people eventually did wind up in fashion in some way or something that they considered to be related to their studies. No, I'm interested the same as you, but I don't, gosh, it'd be such yeah. a big research project to figure out what the effects are. Well, I mean, are. this is a, a wholly unknown. What I'm going to say is like, there's so many variables that you could never really identify which variables hold more weight. But if fashion itself was already such a challenging industry to enter, if this is effectively weeds out people that you know, not maybe not necessarily by choice, but they no longer continue on this path. And if anything, there's a little bit more oxygen in the mm. atmosphere for people that do stick around. Mm. Because it's not like fashion will die overnight as an industry. No, 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 no. It's, it's more about there's going to be a reassessment of its importance. But maybe there is a new sort of equilibrium where, let's say everything contracts, but the contraction of people entering the industry contracts by more than the contraction of the size of the market or the size of the industry. So in theory, there's a little bit more of an entry point. And it's just going to be cyclical if fashion managed to rebuild itself and it becomes yet again a somewhat lucrative industry, then people will flock to it. Mm -hmm. That's all I have. Anything else you want to add? There was this quote from the article that you didn't wind up exactly reading that I thought that I've been kind of flipping over in my head. And the quote is from the XYZ CEO, David Lee, who says, the graduates of 2020 will be the vanguards of system change. They're the most open-minded. And I think it's interesting that in moments like this, there's always going to be loss and then there's also like you said opportunity right so one effect might be that the people who stick it out are the ones the most passionate or the ones who are the most creative or the most open-minded to like alternative routes but i guess we can't know that yet if that's going to be the case but there is that opportunity there with the constraint of the pandemic with the contraction of the fashion industry, that what has to come out of this is going to be more innovative and creative than it otherwise would have been. Yeah. All right. You want to move on? Yeah, let's move on. 
My subject this week is How Creative Peers Accelerate Personal Growth, and it's an article by Ward Andrews published in design.org. It's a short piece that basically advocates for having a network. He doesn't really call it network. It's more like friendship. Having friends who are creative peers. And the article opens by saying, you know, you can be this smart, capable, creative individual who believes you can handle everything on your own. But why would you do that when you can lean on friends? You know, it's a a very feel good of an intro, I think. And I think he makes an interesting point that culture applauds independence, that, you know, we talk a lot about individuals when, you know, time person of the year or enlists about startup founders. It's always these individuals. And it's it often is that fame and notoriety is linked to a single person rather than to a group, you know. And then he goes into six different ways that creative peers can accelerate personal growth. And I think it's kind of interesting because like, yes, I see how all of these are relevant if you are creative in particular, but I would also say that this article could be about friendship being important to personal growth or friends that do something similar to what you do. If if you want to put like that work spin on it. Can I can I ask you a question before you go deeper? Of your immediate friend group, how many of them are somewhat related to your industry? A lot, like 80% of my immediate friend group, especially if I don't count family. Like if I don't count the people that I'm related to, then, God, I'm trying to think of a friend who doesn't do something creative right now. I mean, for me, it's... No, there are a couple. The ones who I've done sports with, those would be the ones who are not creative related yeah which is interesting because that's the same thing for me the people that i play football with are the ones that are generally speaking not in the same industry but at the same time there's probably some sort of shared interest in things that overlap like it's funny because the the whole thing on remote learning is something i've talked a lot with my friends uh both who are teachers and right and just understanding what are some of the development things that children in their formative years are going to miss out without those human interaction moments with their peers, with other adults, et cetera. Yeah. No, that makes me really sad. That, that subject about what kids are missing out on. I guess about background for me, why this is interesting. It is interesting. You asked me that question, you know, how many of my immediate friend group do creative types of things that are similar to me? Because I went to an art school and I also did an MA also in an art and design program and all of my jobs have been creative related so therefore as an adult all of the people that i came into contact with and then that became friends with were from those areas of life so it wasn't hard for me necessarily to establish a friend group that does creative things yeah yeah but do you see yourself wanting to develop more friendships with people that or in your industry, or would you rather have different types of people? No, I don't. I, in general, this is weirdly personal, but I, in general, don't feel like I need to meet more people for, for friendship purposes. Okay. Like, it's always nice to meet more people in terms of like getting new stimulation and hearing about other people's experiences. But 
As far as friends go, I feel like I already have great friends and the friendships I have, I should just work on those instead yeah. of trying to accumulate more friends. What One about, thing what about you? That, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because there's a certain expectation and or outcome with interactions with people that you generally, you know, see eye to eye with or just have shared experiences. So for example, Malin and I, we come from similar backgrounds. So we'll have similar topics we'll talk about. And maybe it doesn't always expand beyond the things that we naturally are, are interested in. However, there are things where we might bring in people, not bring in like, as in, I'm going to bring you in and be, to be my friend, but just you come across other people from different industries. So within the last, let's say 18 months, uh, I've been hanging out with a guy I met through Mayland, right? And his background is far different from ours. He comes from the world of like IT and tech consultancy, et cetera. And what's interesting is just that people that come from different industries that have high level expertise and or experience, they'll introduce new ideas or thoughts around how they see the world. And I find that really fascinating because in general, and this is sort of the catch-all, right? Not, not to say that every industry themselves has a very clear definitive positioning and philosophy, but you could also argue that in the creative world, most people are, are liberal, left-leaning, right? Like they're very open towards certain things. Sure. Yeah. And we'll let that be it's a more, generalization we yeah. make. And it's not to say that, you know, Jason and I have these arguments around political positioning. It's just that that is sort of the the primary group think within creative people. So it is interesting when you are interacting with other people that uh, will have potentially different perspectives on things. They will approach a problem differently. And that's sort of the things. And that's the sort of thing that as you start to realize, I think that you do get stuck a little bit when you seem to repeat the same conversations. It's just that you replace the subject with something else. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's two different things, right? Like there's this article is about having friends who do something similar to you being beneficial to your work that kind of growth okay like personal growth as it applies to what you do essentially but then i think as a person in order to have personal growth you do have to come into contact with a wider range of people who don't do what you do who aren't the same age who have different socioeconomic backgrounds etc so feel like i mean the two bleed into each other because we can all only know like a finite number of people but I think those type of people like kind of serve different purposes in your life. Not to sound like super parasitical, you know, like not like I'm a parasite who collects people who only benefit me. But I just think about the influence people have in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been a very engaging discussion, but I feel like I should at least tell people a little bit more about what the article actually says. Oh yeah, we totally sidetracked. We, we totally that, didn't we? did not. Um, I actually agreed with all of the points, which is kind of rare. I agreed with all the points Ward Andrews makes, which he says having creative peers introduces us to new ideas. They offer support. They offer helpful feedback. They offer opportunities to collaborate. You create healthy competition between one another, and that being 
in relationship with creative peers is going to make you happier as a person. So I think introduction to new ideas is very similar to this conversation that we've been having, even though you said kind of new ideas in the context of, I guess, as a person. But I think new ideas in the concept of work that you do is always necessary because once you fall into, as you said, like groupthink or seeing things the same way, then the work can't improve because you're just doing the same thing repeatedly. And then another subject in this that I think about a lot is like offering support because I've observed myself unintentionally reach a point where younger creative people have reached out to me. And I, I love that. I like being contacted for those reasons. But it does always make me think about, you know, what do I have to offer? I like, I don't think, I don't know. It's not that I underestimate myself, but I think, oh, it's interesting that they reach out to me out of like the people I could have reached out to. Do, but, do you personally find yourself to be an analytical thinker? I, I am an overthinker. Correct. And sometimes I think that that's what people want is the ability for you to go in and make sense of their thoughts and ideas. And that doesn't really require as much expertise and or experience as you think it might. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that besides being an overthinker, I am at least older than that person. So I can put some amount of value on having spent more time than them doing work that they're interested in doing. Even if I'm not, you know, as much of an expert in one particular thing or as famous as like another person, I have at least time over, you know, the person who's contacting me, essentially. And we've talked about this before, about like, how do you transfer knowledge? How do you make sure that the things that you learned as someone who's older get passed down so that they get like a jump start? Like they don't have to relearn what you learned. That's exactly what we try to do. But also that you don't pass down bad lessons. I mean, I don't think there are bad lessons per se, because ultimately you're really just providing guidance and or personal insights based off of what's available to you. And I think it's still ultimately in the hands of the person making the decision to have that responsibility, right? I always tell people this as a caveat, it's like my experiences and everything that I've done in terms of decision making might have been right for my moment in time, my positioning, my mindset. So it's really just letting you know this was my thought process because ultimately your thought process will change because your inputs and your variables are different, but just at least have the framework because without the framework, it's, it's almost as though you're starting from scratch every time you encounter a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always think that there's almost no new problem. You know, I feel like we talked about this last week as well. Like, oh, yeah, definitely. The proper nouns will change, like company ABC versus DEF and the people. But actually, the problem at its core is someone else has already had that problem. Slash, you probably have already had that problem if you just think about it differently. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then... The, next, the, th the third one was, you know, they offer helpful feedback, which I think is for you and me is just so obvious. Like you need someone that you trust, whose value, whose input you respect and value. And then this point is one that I kind of struggle with, where 
creative peers offer opportunities to collaborate. And you know this, like my and my partner's work almost comes exclusively from people we know. And the reason I struggle with it is because I feel like we don't look far enough outside of our circle, but at the same time, like that's the function of having a circle. Like you have relationships within creative networks partially for the benefit of being able to collaborate and work with these people. And my concern is just that, is it too narrow? It, it is for sure going to be narrow, but I think that people sometimes fail to understand what's required for you to, don't call it a pivot, just call it your desire to enter a new space, right? And I, th- and I really believe that that move is, obvious, is often quite difficult, especially since for you to garner work or, or some sort of credibility in a different world, you have to think about how you build it. So in your, let's use your graphic design background as a place where you currently only do, let's say graphic design work for fashion brands, but you're really interested in health and wellness. Thinking about how you can become a relevant player in that new space is something that's quite difficult because you need to deconstruct what are the things you need to do to build that up. And it also takes time, right? And I think that's the one thing that people often fail to understand. And especially from another example, as a photographer, let's say that all you put up on your Instagram are photos of cars, but really you want to shoot food photography. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about how do you go and change the narrative and push you into the places you want to go. And are you saying that part of doing that is through the people you work with? In a way, but it's also trying to think like if the majority of your work is through word of mouth and everyone knows Teresa is like, She's the designer you go to in Hong Kong for like, I don't know, tech products, right? Right. But if that's not where you want to go, like, how do you find a way to rebrand yourself so that, hey, Sharice is actually far more versatile than just design nice UX UI for fintech apps. But don't She's you actually- think that that can also come through the people you know and work with? Like if, you know, you said, I do UX UI for fintech apps. But if I express to that client who already trusts me with UX, UI, fintech apps that I'm interested in doing copywriting for their social media, then do you think I'd get a leg up because of that relationship? But if you don't have any real world examples, which I'm not saying you don't, but if- Well, we're not talking about me in reality. We're talking about a hypothetical person. Correct. But that's what I'm saying is that if- you don't have an association with that, then ultimately it's really hard. So I'll use an example of, uh, with like, let's say Leica. Leica is known primarily for its consumer facing camera line, but they do, let's say medical equipment. So I think that it, in those terms, it's like, it's not that you can't build success in like the field of medical imaging, but at the same point, you have to work really hard to figure out how you're perceived by the outside world. And I think you would agree too, is that when you, when you approach, let's say client work, they generally know in mind the reason why they're approaching you and they like your style, right? But if you're offering something that's outside of what they're looking for from you, it becomes an educational process and not everyone is down to be educated or has a time to be educated on what you offer. So what I'm trying to say is that I think in most instances, the path of least resistance 
the one that's most clear often is the one that seals the deal on why someone would want to work with you. But if you bring stuff into the picture that is a little bit off the beaten path, you also have to have someone as a counterparty that's willing to be educated and to be illuminated on what else you offer. And they have to get acclimatized and like comfortable with what you offer because they also recognize that I only know your quality as a graphic designer versus right. a copywriter. Right. Okay. Well, I had one more thought. This one's the big one. So I'm going to finish off with this one. I wrote the briefing intro yesterday about the NBA athletes who decided to strike and not play their NBA games and then how it created like this ripple effect throughout the sports world, essentially. And tons of athletes said, we're not going to play the games that we have scheduled. Okay. And this is withholding labor, right? This is striking so that something will change about the system that you're unhappy with. I was thinking about creatives and how often, at least in our circles, we are either independent creatives who are working freelance or individually, or we work in small companies where there might just be a team of two or three creative related people. And so how do you create a community that has enough solidarity to cause change within your industry? I think it has to come from having a community beyond your singular workspace. You have to join some kind of greater network of people who do the same thing as you, but across companies and brands and even location. And I was thinking about this, like, for example, let's say there were a bunch of stylists who wanted to protest against racism. What if they all refused to work with just clothing that comes from white designers? So they insisted that the shoots that they're on provide clothes from, you know, a variety of designers or if photographers insisted that you know 50% of models have to be POC like on the shoots that we're on you know but it would only i feel like it would only work at scale because otherwise clients would be like you are such a hassle to work with i will just work with this other photographer instead it needs to work at scale but also the difference between what you just mentioned in the world of fashion versus the NBA is far different because there are sort of boundaries and restrictions and the NBA is obviously such a massive franchise in terms of it is a premier basketball show on the planet, right? So I think that you trying to take a stand there is far different than me trying to take a stand in a much more fluid ecosystem. And also because they're already colleagues, like the Milwaukee Bucks, the Lakers, they're, first of all, the teammates on a team, you know, they work together every day. And then it's very obvious that they all work in the same league. So it's like being colleagues on a larger scale. If I just think about like, how does that translate to fashion and design and creative industries? And I think we only have so much power as individuals. I can, I can set my own measures. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but like you got reached out for an interview and I said, I think you should ask them about who else they're interviewing, you know, just to do your own diligence, right, on what you're being included in and also to apply a little bit of pressure so that they are considering who they're giving coverage and a voice to. But then it only results in systemic change if we all agree to do that. It's kind of the same thing as like pricing, you know, like there's sort of this implicit 
system where freelancers all charge roughly the same rate, right? And that's not always true. Like there are freelancers who charge more and less, but we have to all agree on kind of a standard rate so that we all keep getting work at that rate. Yeah. But to that example, like I said, back to the whole thing around fluidity, if there's going to be replacement products, aka if you, the photographer, won't do it, then someone else will do it, right? Versus I think in the NBA, it's a little bit more difficult because of such a demonstrable positioning of skill and talent through statistics, all these other things that it makes it much more difficult. So I'm actually not confident in this whole, how do I put this? I just don't think there's any leverage from the position of the creative because the size is quite large. However, it's a relative thing too. If you're the best photographer in a mid-sized place, then you have leverage, right? You have talent that you can lean on and your, your pricing will reflect that. I mean, I'm not confident, but I think it's important that we think about that as individual creators and think about how we can consolidate power by cooperating with each other than rather than saying, you know, that we're, we're in competition. It could work in in theory, I feel like, you know, Hong Kong's a smaller city. I can imagine if we really felt passionate about something and then you talk to all of your creative friends and said, hey, we're let's say, well, let's go. Let's go with my example about photographers and POC models, though, in our instance, I feel like it would be non-Chinese models because majority would be Chinese. But if you talk to everyone and you all stood behind that, then. I feel like it could make a difference, but yeah, of course I agree with you. It's incredibly difficult and is not nearly as effective as the NBA and teams deciding to not play the season anymore. But I would hope that it's still worth examining whether you can do things like that. I guess where this is coming from is this belief that I wrote about yesterday where withholding labor is really powerful versus signing a petition. Not to knock so much on signing petitions, but just as an example. Anything else you want to add? No, I think that's about it for me. Anything else? So for the third week in a row, we have been sharing potential making it up topics in our Discord. And our very lovely Macon Patreon supporters have been voting. And it's been pretty fun. And I always click the most voted on ones first. I don't think my subject was one of those, but yours was. I think yours was the most popular. Yep, it was. How much does it influence your decision? Well, if you think about it, I'm generally speaking invested or interested in all the topics because I do the first pass at curating them. This is true. This is true. I feel like the community is now helping me do the second pass. So instead of me yep. reading all 10 links, I just read the ones that are the most voted for. So Yeah, that's fair. Shout out to our Patreon. Thanks, guys. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. 
where you'll receive exclusive content as well as access to our Discord community. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.